Please, if you have them, please take up your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Today we are starting in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, and we will read through the end of Revelation chapter 9. Um, several of you have mentioned or asked about some of the connections that I have made uh, from the book of Revelation to the Old Testament, specifically the prophets. Um, much of that insight, while I do consult many uh, commentaries, much of that insight does come from a man by the name of Gregory Beale. He has written two uh, commentaries on the book of Revelation, um, the shorter of which it is literally called Revelation, a short commentary, is about 650 pages long. Um, but he has spent his life, his career, looking at the uh, connections between the New Testament writings and the Old Testament authors. And um, I had the privilege of hearing him speak while I was in seminary. He came for a lecture series, um, and uh, he was one of the first ones that uh, um, kind of opened my eyes to the realization that the Old Testament is extremely prevalent in the book of Revelation. And also, he was one of the first ones that opened my eyes to kind of the cyclical nature, that it's a, a series of seven visions that cycle through history. Um, in the book of Revelation. So I do owe much to him. Like I said, he is not the only one I uh, consult, and there are times when I do not always agree with his conclusions, um, but uh, um, that is where much of this insight about the Old Testament comes for me in the book of Revelation. So um, let us read together Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Let us pray. God of light and life, we thank you that you have sealed us to be protected from the torments that come upon this world. May we find our hope and comfort in you and in you alone. May we be moved to repentance and to seek salvation of those who suffer the torments of violence and deception. Open our eyes to see your glory and holiness as revealed in this passage. Change our lives by the application of the word, which happens because the Holy Spirit does his work of illumination. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So in this passage, we shift to the second half or the second portion of the third vision. Much like the vision of the seven seals that we looked at in Revelations 4, 1 through 8, 5, um, the vision of the trumpets is divided into a series of four trumpets, then a series of two trumpets, an interlude, and then the seventh trumpet will be blowed, which ushers in the final judgment and also transitions us to the next vision in the series of visions. And the transition from the first four to the next two is signaled here in this vision by this, this angel that is flying in the middle of the sky. And if we were to look forward into Revelation 14, 6 and 19, 17, we would see flying beings, sometimes an angel, sometimes the ravens of the air, uh, there in the middle of the sky, either announcing or carrying out God's judgment upon the peoples of the earth. And the the eagle declares that woe is coming upon the inhabitants of the earth, or in the original language, literally earth dwellers. And this is a term that, that shows up 12 times throughout the book of Revelation to set apart a group of people from those who are sealed by God according to the work and the blood of Christ. These earth dwellers are ones that we'll see later on in verse 20 and 21 that refuse to repent. They are people who are in rebellion against God and who in chapter 13 will pledge their allegiance to uh, the, the king, the ruler of this earth, Satan himself, as they take the seal of Satan upon themselves um, in rejection of the seal of God through Christ. And this declaration that it is the inhabitants of the earth, it is the earth dwellers who suffer most under these trumpets, under these plagues, reminds us that we have a shift from the first or the second vision, the vision of the seals that looked at how those who are sealed bear up under the hope of God's sovereignty um, in suffering um, to this shift, how um, those who have 
rejected God's offer of salvation are affected and tormented uh, without hope. And so today we will see the demonic torment that comes upon the earth dwellers and the call to repentance that this passage ends with. So before we look at the imagery that is given to us in the fifth and the sixth trumpet, we do need to kind of step back and look at how we are planning on interpreting this. And our plan for interpretation pulls us back to a fundamental principle of all scripture interpretation, that the first rule of scripture interpretation is that scripture interprets scripture. The writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith expanded on this to say that when we come across a difficult passage, we go to other similar, more easily understood passages to help us to interpret and to understand the difficult passage. And I bring this up because most current and most popular interpretation of these two trumpets, instead of looking back to Scripture, will look forward to modern warfare. We are, we are going to look at some very disturbing, very confusing imagery. And, and many people look at this imagery and say, oh, well, John was just trying to describe for us what a Black Hawk helicopter or an Abrams tank would have looked like. And he's using first century language because they had never seen 20th and 21st century weapons of war. Now, and there's a danger in this beyond misunderstanding what John is trying to show us in here, what Jesus is trying to show us through John. There's a misunderstanding that, or a danger that can happen because if we look forward to modern thought and modern interpretation of what the Bible teaches to give us the framework, we can make some horrendous mistakes throughout all of Scripture in interpreting scripture. You know, we could be tempted if we're looking forward to modern times to, to look at a modern understanding of human sexuality or a modern understanding of, of a psychological understanding of addiction or marriage or any other issue that scripture deals with and say, well, they just didn't understand things as well as we do. So we can discount what the scripture says. To interpret scripture, we begin by seeing where the Bible has spoken to a certain issue in the past, seeing how the current author that we are studying interprets that issue in light of where he stands in the history of God's people. And only when we understand what scripture has said in the past and how the current author understands it in his inspiration, do we then make the jump to say, this is how we apply it in our current context. We do not go from author that we are reading to current context and then back to the Bible. We do that, we are in danger of compromising God's word and falling prey to false teaching. And so as we look at these two trumpets, we do need to keep that in mind, that we are going to go back to see what scripture says about this imagery before we seek to interpret what it means for us today. So the fifth angel blows his trumpet and John sees a star that has already fallen. And this star is given a key. So what does scripture before say about stars that have fallen from heaven? If we go to Isaiah 14, 
we'll see the prophet Isaiah talking about the fall of the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre because of the atrocities that they have placed upon the nation of Israel in being used as God's tools of judgment. And yet as we read Isaiah 14 and it talks about these kings falling as a star has fallen from heaven, we also get a sense that there is a deeper, more transcendent meaning behind that star falling. God's ultimate enemy in this world, Satan, was once an angel. And we know from Revelation 1 that stars are used in Revelation as imagery for angels. We also know that Satan uh, was once an angel that fell from favor, that fell from heaven because he grasped at God's place in heaven. He grasped at God's throne rather than being content with his place as a servant of the Most High. We know from Luke 10 that Jesus declared to the disciples as they returned from their message of preaching the kingdom of God. What did he say in Luke 10? He said, I saw Satan falling from heaven as they came back and recounted the success that they had in proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God. And we see also this link to Satan as we consider verse 11, which calls him the king of the abyss and names him destroyer in both Hebrew and And in Greek, Peter describes Satan as a lion that prowls, lurking for those whom he can devour, those whom he he can destroy. So the star that has already fallen, that is given the power, that is given the key over the abyss is our enemy, is God's enemy, Satan. And so Satan opens the abyss. The abyss is is described in Revelation in, in contrast to Gehenna, the lake of fire, So it's a place where uh, uh, the demonic hordes are residing until the final judgment. And yet we are told that Satan opens the abyss and these hordes fly out as though a smoke that covers the surface of the sun and blackens the earth, reminding us once again of that plague of darkness back in Exodus. And these these locusts that swarm out of there that are almost vomited forth from the abyss are going to literally be some of the weirdest locusts you have ever seen. They wear crowns of gold. They have human faces. They have long flowing hair and lion's teeth. They wear armor and their advance upon the creation makes the noise of an army of chariots bearing down upon the unfortunate city. These locusts are different than regular locusts as they are not attacking grass and vegetation as they would normally do. They are allowed to attack humans. And these attacks come with the sting of a scorpion's tail, a sharp, excruciating pain followed by a long lasting, dull ache. The sixth trumpet is blown and and an army, an uncountable, and I know the NIV says 200 million there, but It is literally 10,000 times 10,000 and double that, which if you did the math would come up to 200 million. But the picture here is that John has to have this number given to him by somebody there in the heavens because he can't count it himself. It is such an innumerable multitude. And they are released from their position on the east side of the Euphrates For the nation of Israel, anything that came from the east was evil 
It was a sign of judgment. It was a sign of God's disfavor. An east wind brought heat and dryness to the area. A west wind brings coolness and life and moisture to the area. So anything coming from the east is evil. It is judging and it is released from the river Euphrates and it descends upon the earth. This army is on horses. We focus more on the horses here than we do on the riders. This army is on horses that they themselves wear armor of red and blue and yellow, symbolizing the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that they spew out. By the way, where should you think about if you hear about fire and sulfur or fire and brimstone coming from God? Yes, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. So these horses come out and they are allowed to attack and to kill one-third of the earth. In addition to their armor, in addition to the smoke and the sulfur and the danger that comes from their mouths, they have tails that look like snakes, and the snakes can cause damage as well as the mouths of the horses. Crazy-looking horses, demented-looking locusts. What does it all mean? John gives us some words to kind of give us a clue here. At least four times he uses some form of the phrase looks like or as if they were. And he's used this language before. He's used this language in Revelation chapter four and chapter five, where he describes God's throne to be like a rainbow. The glory of God emanating like a jewel with light shining through it. And it's a It's a sign there for us to to help us to understand that John in in Revelation chapter four is describing the glory of God, the indescribable glory of God in human language. He's doing his best to look at something that says that's infinite glory, that's infinitely wonderful, and I am so finite that I'm going to do my best to, to do a horrible job of describing this. We have the same sense here, but in reverse. John is describing something indescribably horrific in human terms. As as much as John's descriptions of the glorious things should move us to awe and to wonder, John's descriptions of the things that are horrendous should move us to terror. As much as heaven is going to be infinitely greater than anything we can think or imagine, so is hell. The language used here to describe these armies, the armies of locusts, the armies of horses, is taken from places in the Old Testament like Joel 1 and 2. We read part of chapter 2 earlier. If you continue to read through the end of chapter 2, you really do see much of what we are having described for us here. Exodus chapter 10, Jeremiah chapter 8, Job 18 and 26, Proverbs 27, Ezekiel 38, Isaiah 5, Daniel 5, all pick up and give us the imagery that John is using here. John is using scripture to interpret what he sees. And each of the times that this language is used, it is used to show a supernatural judgment that comes upon the nation of Israel for their sins or comes upon the nations outside of Israel for their idolatry. Satan is given the keys to the abyss. Satan is the king of the realm of the abyss, and under Satan's given authority, hordes of terrifyingly horrendous beings come out to torment and to kill earth dwellers. 
And what we're talking about here makes each and every one of us, makes you, makes I just a little bit uncomfortable because we're talking about demons and how they torment humans. Now, why are we uncomfortable with that? Well, you know, God reveals that demons exist dead. But, you know, we're well-educated. We, we root our decisions in logic and reason and in science. Demons don't exist in logic and reason and science, do they? One author said Satan's greatest trick is convincing the world he doesn't exist. You know, the Bible is pretty clear in its teaching that demons, that fallen angels are real. And I believe they are active today, tormenting those who are not sealed by God. Now, we'll talk a little bit here very briefly about how sometimes uh, they do torment uh, others as well, but those who are sealed by God need not worry about the torments of the evil one and his minions. So what does this torment of the demons look like on the earth dwellers? Well, it takes on two characteristics that I want to look at today, one briefly, one a little bit more in depth. Violence and deception. Violence. These, these horses, these locusts slash scorpions or scorpion-like locusts or whatever they are, burst forth from the abyss prepared for war. They are attacking. They are at first refrained from killing and then allowed to kill. And it's not merely a physical violence either that they foment upon the world. It is also a verbal violence. You know, we, we think we are a peaceful people, but we are a violent people. We kill, we destroy, maybe not literally. I, I pray that nobody in here has ever literally committed a murder. But how many of us have insulted somebody needlessly? How many of us have called a brother or sister a fool? James says, you proclaim the glory and the majesty of God. And then you kill your, with your lips and then you kill your brother or sister with insults and with words. While we may not be physically violent as a people, brothers and sisters, you and I struggle with the temptation toward violence. And the world around us is no different. God, thanks to his common grace, does restrain the violence, but we are a violent people, demonically violent sometimes. So violence is there, but these, these demons are also used the tools of deception. These demons also have human faces with with harms that come from the mouth. The, the human faces denote uh, intelligence and reasoning, and, and yet they harm with their mouth. This, this reasoning, these reasoning beings will use words to twist and to torment. It's the first thing Satan did when he had access to humanity was he went, did God really say this? Look, I know God gave you all these laws and then he misrepresented the one law. God told you you couldn't eat anything, didn't he? It's not what God said. He's twisting God's words in the ears of Adam and Eve so that they will doubt God. They will doubt the goodness of God. God gave them every tree that existed at that time in the Garden of Eden except one. Any fruit imaginable was there for them to consume. And yet Satan caused them to doubt God's goodness because of one tree. 
a, a tree that God had put a fence around for them so that they would be protected, so that they would be protected from having to carry the weight of determining what is right and wrong in this world. He has no new tricks up his sleeves. He is still working to deceive today. And in modern day, that deception comes by saying, look, I I know, you know, deep down inside you're separated from God. And then that causes pain and anxiety and difficulty in your life. But instead of turning to God, you know, he's denied you this pleasure over here. So why don't you grab it? Because it'll fill that empty hole that you have in there. And people see the gospel and they turn to the things of this earth, thinking that those things will fill them. And yet they just make them more empty. And as this torment moves deeper and deeper and longer and longer into the lie and into the life, you find that more and more is required to make the feeling go away, that feeling of emptiness and difficulty to go away until you despair of life. It says in here that, that many of them desired death, and yet it was denied to them. This is more than merely just somebody who who desires to to take their own life but doesn't have the ability to carry it out. But it's it's an idea that has grown rampant in our cultural thought process called nihilism. Nihilism is wrapped up in the phrase, sometimes life is good, sometimes life is bad, but it doesn't matter because you're just going to die and be forgotten. It's kind of the modern ethos that we have. And, you know, it has shown up in the oddest of places in our entertainment. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but there is a series of Tom Hanks movies. You know, those good, wholesome Tom Hanks movies that actually very clearly show the nihilism of our time. Joe versus the volcano. Everything bad happens to him. He finally gets his life right and the volcano blows up and he's left floating with his girlfriend on a rickety raft in the ocean going, oh, well, what's going to happen next? Someday I'll die. Castaway, he fights for everything to survive on the island, comes back to find that his wife has married another man and that the one thing that kept him alive, that package left him with nothing but a sense of emptiness as he did not get to meet the lady to whom it belonged. And then Forrest Gump starts out, the the feather floats gracefully into the scene. Forrest has good days. Forrest has bad days. And at the end of the day, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And then the feather just blows away. Sometimes good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen. It doesn't really matter because you're going to die and be forgotten. This is in contrast to what Revelation teaches to the church. Revelation teaches to the church that, yes, you are going to suffer under the attacks of nature. Yes, you are going to suffer under the attacks of humans. And yes, sometimes you will suffer under the torments of demons. But you are sealed by God and protected for eternity because those things that cause you torment today will shape how you see the glory of eternity. 
What is it that torments you in this life today? If you are sealed apart by God, you will see the fullness of God's glory in that situation when you are face to face with him. When the new heavens and the new earth are here, you know, you'll still have some of those scars, both internal and external, but you'll be able to see and weep at the goodness that God works through those scars, through those difficulties, through those betrayals, through those torments. But what waits for those who are not sealed? What waits for the earth dweller? More but worse of what they're going through right now. A life of eternal demonic torment. And the sadness in that is how this passage ends. You know, these things happen not because God is merely judging, but also as a warning to them. And yet the passage ends, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Confronted with an infinitely small taste of the torment that they will experience for eternity, They refuse to repent. This actually takes us back to the plagues in the book of Exodus. Remember, most of these trumpets, the pictures in them, the imagery comes from the plagues in Exodus 10 and following. What happened at the end of those 10 plagues? God is systematically dismantling the gods of Egypt. He is systematically dismantling their national property, all because they refuse to allow the Israel to leave their position of slavery and to make their way to the promised land. And at the end, even after massive amounts of death in the land, they still hardened their hearts. And after letting them go, gathered the nation together as an army and went out to destroy the Israelites. Even after having everything, all the prosperity that had built up over 400 years, destroyed in a period of weeks, they still because of their own hardness of heart, they still blamed it on the Israelites and went after them. I think there's something in there for the church to learn as well, that no matter how steeped a culture is in their sin and in their refusal to repent, they are going to blame us for all the bad things that happen. But back to the earth dwellers. They've seen all this judgment of God carried out upon themselves, upon loved ones, and they refuse to repent. And this points us to our own call to repentance. You know, why do bad things happen? We don't understand it, but God uses bad things that happen as a call to repentance. Every human deserves demonic judgment and torment for all of eternity. That is our lot as sinful human beings. We have rebelled against God. We, like Adam and Eve, have seen the goodness that God offers through obedience. And we have said, nope, I'm going my own way. And for that, we deserve eternal judgment. As an aside, this also clues us into one of the reasons why it's an eternal judgment. They're not going to repent then either. They will live eternity suffering the gut judgments of God, still refusing to repent for all of eternity. And yet God offers us through his son the ability to come to him to realize that we have sinned. 
There's six, there's six things that repentance involves. It, does, it, re, it involves the realization that you have sinned against God. It involves the sorrow that comes from understanding that you have sinned against God. It, it involves confession, going before God and saying, Lord, I have sinned in these specific areas. It's the guilt and the shame of causing our Lord and Savior pain as he hung upon the cross. It's a a growing hatred for that sin. John MacArthur says the most glorious thing that will happen when I get to the new heavens and the new earth is that I will no longer be tempted to sin. We hate sin. And then we turn from sin and toward holiness. Brothers and sisters, do not be caught unrepentant. God has given ample warning. Now, many of you have family and friends that appear to be living under the torment of demonic violence and deception. Keep lifting them before God and know that it is not yet too late for them to repent. They can show themselves to be the sealed children of God through turning and repenting. The torments of the enemy are real. Satan is working today to destroy both the unrepentant and the church. But God is still sovereign on his throne. Once again, we have, we have examples here that God rules. The, 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 the angel fallen from heaven does not have the key to the abyss. He has to be given the key to the abyss. The demons can't just go out and torment. They have to be given permission to go out and torment. The battle between good and evil is not between two equal forces who will decide who wins by who has the most souls at the end of history. It is a battle between a defeated foe and his all-powerful conqueror. Those who are sealed will deal with violence and deception. Earth dwellers will seek to destroy the church through persecution, through violence, but God is sovereign over that and he will see his children safely to heaven. The enemy will attack the church through false teaching. And we've dealt with that in the letters to the seven churches. We must always be diligent, but we must always be active in showing how the ways of this world fall and fail and leading people to repentance so that they, like us, can miss hell. Let's pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these words and the light that they shine upon our world and upon our life. Thank you for peeling the cover back and showing us that this is not just an earthly battle. This is a battle between powers and principalities of the air, which you have won. And so, Lord, help us to bring the message of relief from the torment of this world, the relief that comes through submission to the cross, through repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we go this week, we do take this blessing upon us as we go our way, as we walk in our work, in our home, and in our play. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.